You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, February 8th. I'm Desiree Nikfarjan. And I'm Fahima Degya. There are plans to reduce long-term scaffolding on the Upper West Side, and residents say it's about time. It's just freaking endless. <laughs> you know, things like that, they go up. Oh, well, you know, in a year, I can stand it. More on the skepticism beat. New Yorkers remain uneasy about the economy, and city council members try to press the gas on improved bus services. This proposal is a proposal for every New Yorker who sits on buses that go eight miles an hour, the slowest in the country. AI is popping up in everything these days, but does it have a role to play in creating rap music? I'm not keeping my eye on AI until it changes the musical landscape. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Pascal Hogue. New York City Comptroller Brad Lander released a report today providing a blueprint for the Department of Housing Preservation and Development to increase the stock of affordable housing in the city. The report says that the HPD would have to increase housing production by 42% this year just to hit its pre-existing targets for housing affordability. This comes as the HPD has struggled to bring back staff following declines during the pandemic. Between 2020 and 2022, the agency lost nearly a third of its employees, resulting in what they say is a loss of institutional knowledge, which has led to administrative backlogs within the agency. City lawmakers considered two bills today aimed at launching economic and healthcare surveys, surveys of the city's asylum seekers. The sponsors of the bill, Council Member Carlina Rivera, says the bills are meant to better understand the roughly 175,000 migrants who have arrived in the city over the last two years. Rivera says an uptick in migrant hospital visits last year is a sign that the city needs to better understand the long-term health needs of asylum seekers. The Knicks acquired Boyan Bogdanovich from the Detroit Pistons at the trade deadline today. The sharpshooting veteran will join All-Stars Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle in their goal to secure a top playoff position. The Red Hot Knicks are 16-3 since the start of 2024, the best record of any team to start the year. The Knicks are currently dealing with injuries to Randle, Mitchell Robinson, and recently acquired forward OG Ananobi. They will take on Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks tonight at home. The temperature in New York will drop to a low of 38 tonight, and fortunately for us, the sun shirt return once again tomorrow. Pascal Hogue, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. We're your hosts. I'm Desiree Nikfarjum. And I'm Fahima Degya. The Supreme Court heard arguments today over whether former President Donald Trump can appear on Colorado's primary ballot. The court is fast-tracking the decision, and the whole case is highly unusual. It's the first time the 14th Amendment has been presented in court against a presidential candidate, let alone the leading candidate of a major party. Dean Condaleo covers politics for Uptown Radio. At issue is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It says an elected official who has pledged an oath to protect the Constitution and engaged in an insurrection cannot run for office. This section dates all the way back to the years following the Civil War, where it was designed to keep Confederates out of government. In December, a majority of Colorado Supreme Court decided that Donald Trump violated the 14th Amendment because of his role in the January 6th insurrection and therefore cannot appear on Colorado's primary ballot. Attorney Jonathan Mitchell represented Trump in the case. The Colorado Supreme Court's decision is wrong and should be reversed for numerous independent reasons. The first reason is that President Trump is not covered by Section 3 because 
the President is not an officer of the United States, as that term is used throughout the Constitution. Jason Murray, representing Colorado, told the justices that Donald Trump's lawyers are splitting hairs. My friend relies on a claimed difference between an office under and an officer of the United States, but this case does not come down to mere prepositions. The two phrases are two sides of the same coin, referring to any federal office or to anyone who holds one. A point of contention for the justices is whether a single state can remove a candidate for federal office. Justice Eleanor Kagan pressed Murray on Colorado scope. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? No, Your Honor, because ultimately it's this court that's going to decide that question of federal constitutional eligibility and settle the issue for the nation. Justice Kintaji Brown-Jackson then questioned Trump's lawyer, Jonathan Mitchell, over what qualifies as an insurrection. All right, so why would this not be an insurrection? What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because I think you say um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow right. the government. So That's one of many reasons. But for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this and So the point occurred. is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection? No, we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson. Right? None of these criteria were met. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things, but it did not qualify as insurrection, as that term is used in Section 3. From here, the Supreme Court has three options. It could decide to disqualify President Trump across the board. It could decide this is a political question for state lawmakers and voters to answer. Or it could reject Colorado's claim and keep Trump on the ballot. The justices haven't given a timetable for their decision, but some legal experts believe the justices will fast-track their decision. Fast-track not being a term usually used with the Supreme Court, so we would know their decision before the Super Tuesday primaries on March 5th. Dean Condaleo, Columbia, Radio News. Earlier this week, the NYPD arrested 70 current and former NYC Housing Authority employees. They're accused of taking bribes and handing out contracts for kickbacks. This is the largest roundup in Justice Department history. So how did these backdoor deals go unnoticed for so long? I talked with Bennett Gershman. He teaches law at Pace University and is a former prosecutor in New York's anti-corruption office. He said unpacking what's happened here is going to take a while. Now, look, this is not an investigation that's going to take a month or a year. And especially if you feel that this is an ongoing investigation, you're not going to rush into it. You're not going to rush indictments. Because if you think it's it's a very, very widespread organization, um, you know, you're going to take your time and investigate maybe the upper, if there are upper echelon people here involved, mm. how far up does it go? Right. And how... Could something like this be prevented? It is the largest public housing authority in the country. So how do we make sure that things like this aren't just getting forgotten? Look, how do you make sure that people are honest? How do you make sure that people are law-abiding? You know, uh, look, people like to cheat. It sometimes it's very lucrative for people to cheat. I, you know, one way you do it is by deterrence. If you get these people, 
you convict them, you send them to jail for 20 years, that might be a message that's sent out to the uh, community, don't cheat. You, if you do and you get caught, you're going to pay the price, and it's going to be a very steep price. How are people living in public housing supposed to recover from something like this, and what kinds of responses can be given to people who have been scammed for over 10 years, for example? I think they are distressed. I think they feel that they have been uh, victimized. I think they should be relieved, at least that the government law enforcement community was on top of it. And it, while they didn't make arrests right away, they ultimately got these corruptors uh, and these corruptors are going to pay. It took a while, but they did. They did stop this and at least have some faith that your, your, you know, your law enforcement uh, officials are, are on the job. They may not be doing the best job possible, but you never can do that, but at least they're doing it. And I would say, by the way, that, you know, resources do matter. If, you know, and, and resources have always been a problem for police departments and law enforcement community in general. You know, where budgets are tight, all uh, public agencies are going to suffer. And so where do we go from here? What, what can we see happening? Look, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a massive influx of cases into the uh, criminal justice system. You're probably going to have a, a, a large number of these individuals plead guilty because if they plead guilty, they know that they're going to reduce their punishment. And uh, so if they go to trial, they go to trial, and then we'll watch the trials and see what happens. But that's the way it usually works with corruption uh, cases. Professor Gershman, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Happy to do it. Once again, that was Bennett Gershman, professor at FLA at Pace University. I'm Desiree Nifarajam, and you're listening to Uptown Radio. It's been one year since Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine announced a plan to reduce long-term scaffolding those webs of wood and metal we all navigate around the city. The Upper West Side is one of the neighborhoods with the most scaffolding, but residents say they haven't seen much improvement. Cecilia Blotto reports. So it's a huge structure. It obliterates all light here. The block on West 94th Street between Broadway and Amsterdam has three separate stretches of scaffolding. Anne Patello has lived in one of the buildings here for over 50 years. The scaffolding in front of her building has been up for over six years. What it does is allows trash to build up. But it's not just the trash that is concerning. She claims that a group of young men sell drugs under the scaffolding, hidden out of plain sight. It's an all-weather, open-air, drug-selling market that I call the drug cafe. If you had like an analogy to describe what you see on the street, what would you say? The cave. Not a pretty one. Megan Fitzpatrick is the Director of Preservation at Landmark West. I think we have the most historic districts in Manhattan as a neighborhood. Older buildings require regular checks for maintenance, something the city began requiring after a big accident in the 80s that resulted in the death of a Barnard student, struck by a piece of debris that killed her. So Fitzpatrick says that scaffolding is necessary to keep residents and pedestrians safe. That's kind of the non-nefarious <laughs> answer. Nefarious answer is we have landlords that are greedy and don't take care of the buildings they own. Ellen Kushner is a resident who lives on Riverside Drive. Her scaffolding has been up for what she describes as three ghastly years. 
that's just freaking endless. <laughs> and it, it, you know, things like that, they go up, oh, well, you know, a year, I can stand it. And then, you know, you're into your third year and... Uh... In the last year, 500 scaffoldings have been taken down in the city. But Upper West Siders believe their neighbourhood looks the same. Back on West 94th Street, Anne Patello feels that her block is not being taken seriously by the city. I don't want to be defeated, and this is a spectacular place to live. And I just want to keep one little block ahead of that implosion. Cecilia Blotto for Columbia Radio News. And now, some sounds of the city from across the five boroughs. Brian Edward Hack, the rodeo man. Well, we were all probably in our 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, so we were out all the time. And there were there were bands there every night, national, international, rockabilly bands. Would, if they came to New York, that's one of the places that they would stop. Because it was, you know, one of the few honky-tonk type places around. When you, when you came in, there were wooden floors. There was a full-size stuffed buffalo above the bar. What? It was, a, it was a restaurant and a bar, but on the right-hand side was a restaurant, and there was a full-size buffalo there above the bar. And on the other side of the club where the bands played, there was a, a big metal horse trailer sitting there in the bar, and that's where the bartender was. Well, I mean, if you imagine Manhattan, all those skyscrapers and, and, and buildings, and here was this little oasis that looked like a, a roadhouse. It was, it was just a beautiful time, really. You're listening to Uptown Radio, Thursdays at 4. listening to Uptown Radio. I'm your host, Fahima Degia. And I'm Desiree Nefarajam. This is a broadcast by Columbia School of Journalism, and we're on air every Thursday at 4. Coming up, is the economy faltering? Not really, but New Yorkers seem to think so. AI has a new use for local musicians, and as utility prices rise, New Yorkers are quite literally feeling the heat and some surprising health impacts. All coming up soon on Uptown Radio. And now... The news. In New York, I'm Irina Humenyuk. The Supreme Court heard arguments regarding former President Donald Trump's eligibility for the 2024 presidential campaign. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled in December that Trump is not eligible to win the primary because of his involvement in the January 6th insurrection. This is a landmark case. Not since Bush v. Gore. In 2000, has the Supreme Court held so much responsibility in a presidential election? Trump has been deriding this lawsuit, calling it un-American to disallow the American people to vote for whomever they want. The Supreme Court is likely to fast-track the decision and appear poised to keep Trump on the ballot. 
In Iceland, a volcano that's been active since December has erupted for a third time. As of six o'clock this morning, we in Iceland have experienced another volcanic eruption and it is happening in terms of damage much faster than some of the other eruptions. Heat and hot water has been cut off for tens of thousands of local residents. The volcano is near the capital, Reykjavik. The government called a state of emergency this afternoon. Before 2021, the volcano was dormant for about 800 years. Efforts are underway to recover the remains of five Marines confirmed dead this morning from a helicopter crash in California. The Marines were on a routine flight from Nevada to San Diego on Tuesday when their helicopter was reported overdue. The plane was discovered in Pine Valley, more than 40 miles east of San Diego. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has left the Middle East after a multi-country trip that had failed to reach an agreement with Israel over a ceasefire in Gaza. Of course, uh, focus on the hostages and, uh, and the strong uh, desire that we both have to see them return home to uh, their families. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a Hamas proposal to exchange the hostages in return of Palestinian prisoners and a long-term ceasefire. Meanwhile, Israel seems poised to attack the southern city of Rafah, where nearly half of Gaza's total population, more than a million displaced people, have sought refuge. President Volodymyr Zelensky has replaced his army chief, Valery Zeluzhny, after weeks of speculation. It's a major shakeup at a time when Russian forces are gaining the upper hand after more than two years of war in Ukraine. Ground Force Commander Alexander Sursky will replace him. Meanwhile, in Russia, an anti-war presidential candidate, Boris Nijenjin, has been barred from participating in the upcoming presidential election. Election officials claim Nijenjin fell short of the signatures he needed, signatures he needed to get on the ballot. Former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro's passport has been confiscated by Brazilian police. He was accused of helping to overturn election results, pressuring his military to join a coup attempt, and scheming to throw Supreme Court justice in jail. In the city, it's 40 degrees. Lows overnight will be around 36 degrees. Tomorrow, high in the 50s. This is Irina Humanyuk, Columbia Radio News. A new study from Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health finds that energy insecurity has harmful impacts on New Yorkers' health, especially people of color and children. I spoke with Daniela Hernandez. She's one of the study authors, and she said that's a problematic pattern. But when you can actually say that folks that are experiencing more energy insecurity are also more likely to be in poorer health, then we're talking about, and they're more likely to be low-income people of color that are renters um, and that have uh, children in the household. You have a pattern of social vulnerability and medical vulnerability that is undeniable and that we start to see that the path toward energy equity is a, an adjacent path and an intersecting path to social equity and to health equity. My next question is, how are children affected differently than adults from energy insecurity? Uh, physiologically, children are more sensitive to issues uh, around, you know, thermal um, extremes. Um, and so their capacity to absorb extreme cold or extreme heat, for instance, is different than uh, an adult without any kind of underlying health conditions. And that to me is part of the goal of this work is to situate it under the umbrella of equity because 
an unjust society and an unequal society is bad for health at its core. How would you define energy insecurity? So energy insecurity is defined as the inability to meet household energy needs. And how do we make eco-friendly energy more accessible to low-income households? Uh, It has a lot to do with it because actually a big part of how folks are um, uh, the, 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 the range of policies in terms of decarbonization point to a number of things. They point to vehicles, right? So this is where the electrification of vehicles is important. But greenhouse gas emissions, an important source of it is actually in housing. And, and, and especially in older housing, a lot of it dependent on fossil fuels and a lot of it performing uh, in ways that are inefficient and thereby using more energy that makes it more costly, that makes it more uncomfortable. And that means that people that are living in those environments are compromised in terms of their health. Okay. Thank you so much, Professor Hernandez. Thank you so much, Fahima. Nice to meet you and a pleasure to have me uh, to, to tell my story and to tell the story of this work. Thank you so much. Thank you. This year, the American economy seems to be booming. Last month's jobs report showed employers added over 350,000 jobs. That means the unemployment rate has stayed under 4% for the last two years, a record-breaking achievement. But despite these strong numbers, New Yorkers remain doubtful about the economy. Tommaso Baronio reports. There's a disparity in views on the American economy between the data and the opinions of the Upper West Side residents. Jasmine is working as a barista at a coffee shop on 96th Street. What do you think about the economy? I think that it's a shit show. Prices are high in groceries and typical rent and the job market. It says there's a lot of jobs out, but it's very hard to get a job. Nearby, Hadi is sitting on a bench eating her lunch. I think in terms of like global economy, recession coming post-COVID, it's very bad, especially at the inequality side of it as well. How like polarized it is between rich and poor um, seems to be quite prominent at the moment. Uh, are you worried for your future? Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Katrina sees a glimmer of hope amidst the darkness. The economy is recovering. The society seems more stressed about it because of the media misrepresenting information rather than because of the what's actually going on. Yeah. Although the wages is a real concern, but you know that's just what happens to all developed economies. Guys, what's happening? Americans never had so many jobs. What we are experiencing now is some inertia from the high inflation we had a year ago. This is Daniel DiMartino. He's getting his PhD in economics at Columbia University. Unemployment is not the only thing that matters. People's real wages matter. Like if everybody has a job but everybody's making 10% less, then that's not a good economy, right? DiMartino says it just may take a while longer. They're going to have to feel it for some more time for their opinion to change. Michael Hilliard teaches economics at the University of Southern Maine. He says a lot of Americans are still living paycheck to paycheck. You have that that large part of the population kind of close to the bone, and you get hit by some really sharp price increases, and it's going to have a big impact on your psychology. He says people feel vulnerable right now. Half of the population can't afford homes due to things like student loan debt, or interest rates. 
But how people think about economy is more than just numbers. Perceptions of the economy are highly correlated with party affiliation. So, in other words, Trump was in office. People who、uh, told posters they were Democrats really thought the economy was doing poorly. And then when Joe Biden got elected president, it reversed. Well, it seems like it will be an interesting election year. Tommaso Baronio, Columbia Radio News. After four years of delays, congestion pricing has been given the green light. But now some city lawmakers say more money is needed to improve public transport. Today, state legislators launched the Get Congestion Pricing Right campaign, which aims to cut down traffic and bring in more buses to an ailing system. Our reporter Marine Saint went along for the ride. Next stop, The bus system in New York City isn't just slow. A 2017 city comptroller's report says it's the worst in the country. But with less traffic expected in New York City, once congestion pricing kicks in, legislators and advocates want to make the most of this opportunity to boost the bus system. We need better service, more reliable service, more affordable service. That's Assembly Member Zoran Mandani. He'll be introducing the Get Congestion Pricing Right legislation in the Assembly. This proposal is a proposal for every New Yorker who sits on buses that go eight miles an hour, the slowest in the country. Mamdani and other politicians backing the proposal are asking the mayor for 90 million dollars. They say the money would be used to boost the city's aging transit system. They say the MTA has buses sitting idle, and their plan would use those vehicles and expand a limited pilot program that offered free bus rides and was introduced last year. Of the state budget, and it is in that budget that we could secure this 90 million dollars. This is about thinking of the existing stock, the existing network. From June, it will cost downtown drivers 15 dollars to head lower than 60th Street. With this controversial congestion charge and varying subway access across the boroughs, more New Yorkers may be catching a ride on a city bus. Right now, the bus system in New York City is a system of last resort for people. People get on the bus because they don't have any other option, not because they choose to. MTA's CEO Yano Lieber says the city is ready to make the planned changes, like introducing more bus lanes across the central business district. He gestures to the newly installed toll cameras above 60th Street. The 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 arms right here, the camera system is right here at 60th Street. We're going to be ready to go. Lieber says that the MTA is, however, still in talks over the 90 million budget demand. According to Lieber, the proposal will only work with Mayor Adams' backing. Adams was previously a supporter of improving the bus system, but now politicians are no longer sure of his support. I love Bus Mayor Eric Adams. I want him back. Across the block from the press conference, regular rider Diana Beckford is waiting to see if this proposal follows through. Beckford would welcome the extra buses, but she's also skeptical. Yeah, let's see what happens. The whole MTA, I'm not satisfied with it. To the subway or the buses, yeah, no, and it's just like clog. It happens. It takes sometimes. I wait for 20 minutes. Mayor Adams' backing is the final stop for pushing through the extra transit funding. For now, like a lot of New Yorkers, Beckford will continue to wait. Marine Saint, Columbia Radio News. Last month, the Hip Hop Museum in the Bronx officially unveiled a new technology that uses artificial intelligence to aid emerging rappers with their creative process. The announcement raises a big ethical question. 
Hip-hop has always put a premium on being real, so does the genre have a place for a technology that is by design artificial? Pascal Hogue reports. The house of cannabis in Soho tonight is full of hip-hop fans. In one corner, a DJ is remixing classic hits, and all around, the lime green walls are covered with colorful graffiti art. It's all for an event celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. There's a panel of special guests sharing stories of how they became part of hip-hop culture, like T.L. Cross, who's holding the mic. The guy on top of it was banging on it, boom, boom, clank, 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 boom, clank. He was lifting the thing up, and going clank, 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 boom, clank. The other dude is freestyling. That was the moment that I fell in love with hip-hop. It wasn't even a record. That sense of spontaneity may be changing. The Hip-Hop Museum's new technology, Flow Scholar, is a collaboration with Microsoft. It harnesses artificial intelligence to help aspiring rappers write lyrics and find their flow. And it comes at a time when the music industry, fans and musicians are already asking, should there even be a place for AI in hip-hop? Dan Charnas teaches classes on pop music at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. He's also written several books on the history of hip-hop. I'm not keeping my eye on AI until fundamentally it changes the musical landscape. Charna says DJs and rappers have always embraced new technologies. Revisiting and reusing existing songs is in the DNA of hip-hop. And in that way, AI is no different. But he says there can be an added ethical issue when AI is used to trick us. The, the devil is not copying. The devil is deception. He is referring to the wave of AI-assisted songs that went viral last year, like this one featuring Drake and The Weeknd. The voice you're about to hear isn't Drake's, however. It's a fan who disguised his own voice using AI. I'm not trying to convince you that I'm the Beach Boys, if I sample the Beach Boys. That's different from deception, which is, yo, this is Drake's hot new record. That's fraud. China says AI may have a place at the table, as long as it can do a good enough job with fans. When culture is dumbed down, I think AI can be more useful. But I also think people get bored. <laughs> and um, AI has to learn. It's a wide open thing. But if AI creates something that we enjoy that's not human, then fine if it adds to our enjoyment. But replacing humans? I mean, I don't think so. Back at the House of Cannabis, Ramel Gavantes, a.k.a. Royal Flush, says the answer is simple. You shouldn't ask anyone for help when writing your raps, artificial or human. If somebody got to help you write your shit or you need substitute teachers or something like that, I mean, I, I don't agree with that at all. Originality come home who you are. I mean, not everybody's going to be the dope MC, not everybody's going to be the best, but you got to talk about what you live through. So maybe AI will find a place in hip-hop. But to get there, it'll have to earn its stripes no differently than any up-and-coming MC. Pascal Hogue, Columbia Radio News. And now, some sounds of the city from across the five boroughs. Stop it. Stop. Wary, I'm Wary the Birdman. I'm feeding the pigeons. Larry Reddick, pigeon feeder, Washington Square Park. Well, one day I was homeless and they'd fly up on me down there, so... I've been doing it for 12 years now, so... <laughs> no, 
13 years, 14 years now. Wow, 2004 already. I've been, oh, it's 2024, excuse me. I've been doing it for, since 2010. Yeah, teaching people about birds, I feed them, you know. Giving people a different perspective about them. You're listening to Uptown Radio, Thursdays at 4. That's it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our executive producer today was Dominic Hall Thomas. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Julia Leo, joined by assistant producer Clara Boders, and general producer Samuel Eli Shepard. And shaping up the edition was senior editor Claire Davenport with the help of assistant editor Christina McKaya. Director Cecilia Blato coordinated our studio production team. In charge of webcasting and socials was Tommaso Baronio and working the board was Zoe Yi. Pascal Hogue and Irina Humanyuk delivered our local newscast, and day reporters Maureen Saint and Dean Candaleo brought you the latest on the ground in New York. Our instructors Sally Herships, Carrie Donahue, and Priscilla Alibi advised our staff. And we're your hosts. I'm Fahima Degya. And I'm Desiree Nikvarajam. Uptown Radio is live Thursdays at 4, but you can always find us at uptownradio.org. Until next time, and from all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening.